Hi, friends. My name is Maria McNeil Phelps, and this is the McNeil Voice Studio Podcast. Here we'll be exploring the journey of discovering your true voice, whether it is exploring your purpose or calling or your speaking or singing voice. We're going to talk with others about their journey and look for inspiration and ways to fall in love with the process of self-discovery. So here we go. Hello and welcome to the McNeil Voice Studio Podcast. My name is Maria McNeil Phelps and today I have a very special guest with me. Her name is Kat Moses. She is an activist, an advocate, and community organizer. She is a 2020 MPA graduate from Murray State University and a 2012 graduate from uh, Berea College's Women's and Gender Studies program. She is co-founder and president of PFLAG Somerset, Kentucky, as well as co-founder and leader organizer or leader organizer of Chill Out and Proud Somerset. She also serves as treasurer for the Watershed Arts Alliance and is part of the collaboration developing the Lake Cumberland Diversity Council. Kat is passionate about eliminating barriers to community resources, amplifying marginalized voices, and fostering spaces where all are not only welcomed but belong. She believes that the collective impact can be accomplished through communication, creativity, empowerment, information, interpersonal connection, and innovation. Yay. Welcome, Kat. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. So today I am, uh, well, we're going to really focus on why it is so important to listen to that inner voice and acknowledge it. From the voice teacher perspective, one big thing I've noticed is that when you take a moment to figure out how something makes you feel, and I understand that sometimes that is difficult to even identify, but if you can take some time to sit with your feelings, you are basically telling your body that you care and that you want to spend time with it. And that leads to more relaxation. It leads to feeling safe. And in the end, there's a connection and better singing. Um, but in your eyes, what does it mean to acknowledge yourself? Um, I think honestly, acknowledgement, um, has a lot to do with identification. Um, but I also think it has to do with accepting parts of yourself. Um, I've been on kind of a self-healing journey uh, for several years now. And I think to understand yourself, um, it's it's acknowledging and accepting characteristics and traits uh, that may not always be positive, right? Accepting mm-hmm. and um, cherishing those positive traits for sure, but also acknowledging the things that are dark, uh, that are difficult to process or things that you weren't expecting to know about yourself. Um, you know, uh, they talk a lot about shadow work and that's kind of addressing, addressing those dark parts. Um, but I think that as, as human beings, we are such complex creatures, right? We're complex plants mm-hmm. with emotions. Um, <laughs> and I think, uh, I think that acknowledging and understanding who you are is the first step to really living a, a fulfilled life. Oh, I love that. Um, so we're we're jumping out the gate here. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Like tell me some something about uh maybe perhaps a moment in your life that helped you find your purpose, your calling. Sure. Um I'm gonna issue a, a little bit of a trigger warning and say that this is about assault um for anyone who may be who may be triggered by that topic. 
my first weekend on my undergraduate college campus, um, you know, I had I had befriended someone during orientation that we did all the events together, you know, someone you could sit with in the cafeteria for that first week. Um, and the first weekend, we, they had a campus party. The young lady that I had befriended was assaulted shortly after. Mm-hmm. And I was the first person she told. Um so I was with her through the process of reporting it to our, our uh, campus hall staff, uh, of reporting it to campus security, and then uh, I accompanied her to the hospital for the, uh, you know, the full round uh, of tests that they would do in a kit. And throughout the process, um, I kept being startled by how disempowered she felt and by how people were responding to her. Um, our hall staff was fantastic. Even even our campus um, security was fantastic. But once we got to the hospital, um, even the nurse who was um, a sexual assault nurse examiner, who was specially trained to go through this process with a victim, um, was a little short and rude mm-hmm. and accusatory. Um, of course, then local police showed up to ask questions, and um, this individual was not sure about pressing charges at that time. She was still kind of processing what had occurred, um, but they too were were accusatory and um, a little shaming, uh, asking questions like, well, why didn't you yell? Was there anyone around? Couldn't wow. you have asked for help? And so the even beyond that, um, the judiciary process that she would go through um, should she choose to kind of handle it internally with the college, which was encouraged at the time, um, was very disempowering and very victim blaming and uh, required that she sit in the room with that individual so that they could each report their version of the story in front of the judiciary board, which was tr- a, a whole separate traumatic experience. Um, and I, I was just appalled. I thought, you know, higher education is this space for these big thoughts and understandings, right? Everyone talks about, everyone goes to college and gets woke. (laughs) You you kind of (laughs) learn the things that you didn't grow up learning necessarily in the area that you lived in. And I couldn't believe that in this revolutionary experience in this space that I felt like it was, um, it was still really problematic. There were still really um, much older, uh, less modern understandings of of being trauma informed within policy and procedure mm. and i think it it kind of lit an activist fire um i got mad about it <laughs> and i i started a group of uh, faculty and staff and students who got together and talked about these types of events how the campus handled them um and we were able to kind of make policy recommendations and start an orientation program about healthy decision-making that also provided um, insight into policy and procedure. So, so freshman students wouldn't come onto campus and have an experience like that or something as simple as uh, not being able to maintain their social media time and get their homework done. Um, but kind of having those tools and resources handed to you first, right off the bat, before that college party, before those first week of classes. Um, and I, I think from that point forward, um, I was just really passionate about speaking on behalf of people who felt like they couldn't, um, speaking up wow. for them. You know, she, she couldn't take classes, um, that he was registered in. If he registered first, she wasn't able to take that class. They weren't able to be in the cafeteria together. And on a small campus, that's incredibly difficult. Um, 
So I, I think from from that point forward, um, just anyone who who needed someone at their side, who wasn't, I guess, afraid or or maybe in the space that they shared, um, to be able to speak up and say something and say, "This is problematic. What can we do? Let's let's fix it. Let's yeah. not just be upset about it. But what can we do about it to change it?" And that. I don't know. It's kind of just (laughs) propelled from there. Wow. So, um, gosh, that's got to be a moment of like finding courage in yourself too to stand up for these people. So was it anger that led to that courage? Like what, what helped you find courage to have that voice? I honestly think it was almost a final straw by, by the time I was 18 years old, I knew that most of the women in my life, familial, friends, otherwise, had had some sort of experience like that, uh, mm-hmm. harassment, assault, or, or where their power um, over their choice to say yes or, or have something happen to them was taken from them. And so the bravery and courage that they, they expelled every day, just waking up and doing life and trying to um, trying to allow for forgiveness for themselves, mm-hmm. and and moving forward with with courage and zest for life. That's what I thought was courageous and brave. I was in awe of them. I was in awe of her, of her just coming back to campus and getting into her first week of classes. And I mean, that transition as a first year college student is so difficult to begin with. Right. And then you add that layer to it. I can't imagine. I mean, I was with her and I still can't imagine internally what she must have been going through every step that she took on that campus all of the time. And she never received justice. And that that's the part that I think is the anger igniting. Um, and there, there was I, certainly a layer of anger. I think as a college student, <laughs> I had a professor tell me once, you're never going to change much if you always come into the room with your fists up in the air and your voice raised. <laughs> and at the time I was mad about that. I was like, no, we should be able to do that. They should have to listen to us. Um, but that kind of stuck with me. And throughout the years, I have learned that in various groups or in various spaces, um, there's kind of an art to that communication, to that tact and building connections with people who don't see things the same way that you do. Mm. Um, but being able to present information in a way that helps their empathy and understanding of something. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a college administrator say, oh, is assault really an issue on college campuses? You know, I'm not familiar with the stats. Is that something that we really need to be concerned about? And I provided him with the stats at the time, which is one in four women uh, on college campuses. And he himself had a daughter who was graduating high school and, and transitioning to a college campus. And so I, I implied, you know, I'm sure that your daughter has a group of friends, five or six, you know, that she spent time with in high school. Imagine knowing that one or more of those young ladies will go to college and could potentially have that experience. Mm. And instead of him seeing things from an administrator's perspective, he was then able to think as a father, as a human being, I would never want someone else, of course not my daughter, to ever have that experience or be in in a hostile environment that's not safe for them. Yeah. And so I think when we're able to have those difficult conversations, even when the people across the table don't see it the same way that we do, we're able to kind of establish a base level of humanity that that I think we all universally share for each other. Um, 
even though it, it manifests differently in, in policy uh, and procedure, you know, whether that be political, federal, uh, institutional. Right. Um, I think, I think those conversations are, are more of what um, ignited my passion for it than anger, even just seeing that there was power in that, that we had yeah. some level of control to change something. I love that. Um, so what, when, uh, from your experience, what happens with people who are silenced? Well, I think that there are, there are several different responses, right? There are internal responses, individuals who are silenced, um, also often experience anxiety, grief, um, depression symptoms, because it's a physical, they're physically manifesting emotional symptoms because they're withholding something. They're not living their truth. They're not living authentically. Um, you know, I, think, I, I talk a lot about walking on eggshells, right? Mm-hmm, Trying to yeah. make sure that you're utilizing the right speech um, or that you're presenting a certain way when you're afraid to be yourself in a space, whether that be because you're of a queer identity or because you're a person of color in a space that's predominantly white. Um, you know, we present ourselves in a way that makes us feel safe, mm-hmm. but it's also detrimental to who we are as people. Um, externally, I think that we sometimes strip people of uh, the pleasure of knowing our true selves, of being empowered by us being ourselves. I think that a lot of times people forget that living your truth is a political statement, Mm -hmm. living out loud in your identity and embracing the various things about your culture or your orientation or your background. Um, It is a political statement and you're empowering the people that are looking at you in examining your actions and they think, oh, oh my gosh, they live their truth so unapologetically and there's such sunshine. And, and th- that's always what I think about those people is they, they light up a room when they come in because they're just so unabashedly themselves. Um, and I think that that's so empowering and is also capable of creating um, uh, that collective change. Um, it's just living out loud normally like everybody else in, in whatever that looks like. Well, I'm going to I'm going to go a little deeper into this um, and chat about compassion. (laughs) Um, So like when we talk about empathy and empathy is that feeling of awareness towards other people's emotions. So really feeling and and seeing from their perspective and and attempting to understand how they feel. Right. And then compassion is kind of taking that a little further, recognizing the suffering of others and then wanting to actually take action to help. Right. Um, So there are people out there that actually openly say, hey, I wish that I knew how to be more compassionate or I wish I had more empathy. And I'm actually pretty excited for them for recognizing that, yeah, (laughs) maybe that's something within themselves that they want to work on. I'm like, okay, Um, what are some tools uh, that you could give to people that are, are wanting to have more empathy and be more compassionate? The best thing that we can do to be more compassionate and have more empathy is to talk to each other, Um, particularly talk to people that are different from you, who have different life experiences and perspectives. Um, You know, everyone has a perception of homelessness, what causes it, how it manifests and what that looks like. 
until you meet people that are experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone has a perception of uh, what a domestic violence survivor is like, what their life might have been, uh, how they experienced violence. But you you won't know that until you talk to a variety of different people um, because every experience is different uh, from based in where we're from uh, to our families, to our genetics. Um, it all has such an impact on who we are as people and how we live our lives. Mm-hmm. And so I think the best thing that we can do is just have those conversations. If you look at your circle and you're like, you know, we're all really alike. <laughs> <laughs> Question that. Ask why. Why why does everybody in this group only listen to country music? Why does everyone in this group only drink lattes or (laughs) or, or whatever? (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Me too. Um, But I I would encourage people to step outside of those spaces. Where do you meet your friends? Maybe try to meet someone in a space that you've never been before or almost that scares you. That's different. You're, mm, I don't. I've never been to a biker bar. What would a biker bar be like? <laughs> or, or an art class. Um, just do something that's out of your comfort zone, and you'll meet people that are different from you. And I, I think our community, in particular, um, is sprinkled with such uh, a unique and tenacious group of citizens. Um, I mean, across the spectrum, like every time I meet people, I'm like, Hey, if if you're not from here, how'd you wind up here? Like, how did you find us on a map? (laughs) Um, but also just, uh, I've been exposed to so many different ideas, so many different foods and cultures and, uh, types of music and, uh, and religious experiences. And I think that that is really what empowers me, um, to kind of have hope in, in humanity and, and have hope in compassion and empathy. And that um, even when I don't fully understand the experience or what someone is, is going through, um, I have at least listened enough to them to know how they feel about it. And I have held that space to honor their feelings and how they saw that experience. And if I can do that and then listen to what they need, what do you need from me personally? Is that advice? Is that just listening? And then also, what can I do to support this cause? Can I write a letter to my local representation? Can I write an editorial in the paper? Um, Could I just follow a page on Instagram and learn more about this? You know, something as simple as, as trying to learn more about someone else's experience can really build the foundation of a relationship that you had no idea you could even have. That holding space for each other in that way um, is so intimate. And in a way that sometimes friendships are not. Um, and and I personally am grateful for those intimate spaces where I can fully be myself and fully not know something or understand it and and feel safe to ask. Right. Um, another, another question people ask is, uh, why is self-compassion so difficult for so many people? And I, uh, I go to author uh, Deidre Fay. She uh, was like, uh, people are hesitant or resistant to self-compassion because we're afraid of two things. One is it won't work for or make a difference. So it's like, why bother? <laughs> Two, we're often afraid of becoming vulnerable. That self-compassion will cause us to feel the suffering even more. So we're protecting ourselves from self-compassion is often yet another way to try to buffer ourselves from pain. And then uh, the third reason uh, is sometimes we are so like unused to the feeling of of reassurance and compassion that it's almost like we're not able to compute, like, what is this? (laughs) Um, 
So in your eyes, how, how can we build more self-compassion? Um, well, that's, that's part of my self-healing journey. Um, I'm one of those people that's way harder on myself than I am anyone else. Um, but I, I'm not sure if you uh, or your listeners have uh, done much reading into inner child work, but it's this concept of kind of healing the child, your inner child, um, from the experiences that you had as a child and becoming that protector now that you're your own adult you know, that your your parents um, are on their own taking care of themselves and you're taking care of yourself, or maybe you don't have family that you're close with, um, but you becoming that protector for that, that part of your identity that is still that kid, that kid that still is scared of the dark or um, is afraid when voices are raised or um, shudders when there's too much noise in the room, you know, what, however that manifests for you, you know, I think oftentimes we kind of limit the idea of trauma to big events, yep. right? Well, sure, I was in a car accident. That was very traumatic. Or I lost a parent. That was very traumatic. Um, but even simple things like not being able to bond with your peers in school and have a support group at that age, um, having a difficult time finding hobbies that you could invest in to kind of self-develop spending time with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very simple things can be traumatic. And I think that we can, if we can acknowledge and identify those things within ourselves uh, and work to be that healer, to be that protector, to be that safe space, um, to have that compassion, then I think that we can begin to get over those things, uh, learn from them, of course, because we, we don't we don't forget our past. It builds into who we are. Um, but then it also kind of provides us with um, tools that are fit for what we experienced for what we are doing moving forward and also things that we can share with others. Um, you know, I, I lost my mother in 2015 and that experience was horrific and traumatic and difficult. Um, but now when I know someone who is experiencing a, a great loss, like a death in the family, um, I have such I have so much more compassion and insight into what they could need. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think when I experienced my first great loss when I was young, all of my friends wanted to entertain me. When they came to the funeral, they wanted to keep my mind busy. And, you know, they gave me things to to kind of do while I was there versus feeling what I was feeling. Yeah. Um, you know, but older, I, I had to process those emotions a little bit faster. And people did things like stocked my fridge with food I could heat up so I didn't have to cook. And mm-hmm. they came to my house and cleaned when I couldn't. And I think that they knew to do that because they themselves had that experience. Yeah. And so now I'm able to offer that compassion and, and be that source of strength for people when they have those experiences and kind of... I think that can be true of any experience that we have in life. Um, and if you're able to help somebody along a difficult time, I mean, that that almost makes some of the difficult times worth it. Yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit, let's go, let's go back into the activism part of what you do. <laughs> um, what, is, what does it even mean to be an activist? Oh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm sure Webster's has a perfect definition for it. Um, <laughs> but in my mind, um, I call it fighting the good fight, um, fighting the good fight to a more equal and equitable and just world for everybody, whether it be in our small community, whether it be in our state, 
um, or national. I, I think that a lot of folks kind of attach themselves to several causes, whatever, whatever strikes that fire in them. Um, but for me, I think overall, um, just trying to witness a collective effort toward making the world a better place for everybody in whatever way that looks like for you. So, uh, and, and you're doing this, <laughs> you're out there and you're I hope so. It and it's awesome. Um, so tell me a little bit more about, uh, PFLAG Somerset, Kentucky and the chill out and proud Somerset. Sure. Um, so PFLAG Somerset, Kentucky is a chapter of PFLAG national. Um, PFLAG has been around for almost 50 years. Uh, it used to stand for parents and families of lesbians and gays, but they have abandoned kind of that clause in the effort of being more inclusive of the spectrum of identities and orientations. Um, PFLAG started as a simple act of a parent publicly standing up for their queer child. That was really the manifestation. Um, other parents reached out to that parent and said, hey, we should have a support group for parents <laughs> because we need this. We need to have this conversation and and find ways that we can advocate for our children. Um, so since that happened uh, 48 years ago, I think um, uh, PFLAG has been advocating, educating, and providing spaces for support um, for uh, LGBTQ plus people and their friends and families. Um, it is the largest family and ally organization in the country. Um, there are over 400 chapters and Ooh. over 200,000 members. Wow. Um, and I, the manifestation of PFLAG um, sort of came from the failed fairness ordinance in Somerset. Oh, um, okay. Yes, uh, Ron Kidd um, is the individual who reached out to me um, after the fairness ordinance effort uh, when our city council, only only one member um, voted in favor of uh, fairness ordinance, which would have provided employment and housing protections for LGBTQ plus individuals. Um, so Ron reached out to me and said, you know, I, I think... I think we need visibility. I think we need support. I think we need advocacy. Uh, I want to start a PFLAG chapter. Let's have a chat. Um, and he kind of brought a, a, several people from the community to a room together. And we started having a conversation and figuring out how you start a nonprofit, <laughs> which was uh, an interesting learning experience, but kind of came into my life at the perfect time. Um, I was in another career transition and, and decided to go back to school and study public administration. And I did a nonprofit leadership concentration. Wow. <laughs> so I was kind of learning the process while also fulfilling the process. It, <laughs> it was interesting and difficult and fantastic. Um, and then around the same time, um, you know, people were very vocal on social media about uh, wishing that there was more representation, wishing that there were more voices and more visibility. And, and this thought kept reverberating that, like, they don't know we're here. The people in the community who are against this don't think that gay people are here or they don't think we experience this level of discrimination. Mm. And so what can we do? And somebody said, we need to we need to have a pride. And I was like, all right. Let's do it. Let's, I'm, I'm that person. Like, let's quit talking about it. Let's just, let's do something about it. And I said, everybody meet me at the library in the community room at five o'clock on this date. And, you know, there are like six people that showed up and we were like, well, we could, we'll book a band and people can sell <laughs> quilts and art and uh, we'll call it a day. That'll, that'll be what it'll be. And um, 
we scheduled a next meeting and I said, you know, call your friends, <laughs> call your gay friends, <laughs> call your allied friends, call the people you think would want to have this conversation, would want to do this thing. And then the next time I showed up in that room, there were 50 people in it. Wow. And I was like, oh, are we doing this? Okay. <laughs> and it, it manifested into Chill Out and Proud Somerset, which um, we're now on our, our planning period for our third annual um, and it was not just a couple bands and some people selling quilts. It was um, a large scale festival. We had bands booked all day and we had a drag show at Jarfly. And um, it, it kind of, I keep saying that our community, um, myself and everyone who was involved just so happened to be in the perfect space to manifest this thing. Um, we keep saying it was a universe thing. It was meant to happen. We were just the vessels. Um, but I think that I think it was a time in which our community needed it and desired it. And there were just a group of people that happened to be in the room together that were really committed to seeing it happen. Uh, and so it's, it's been, I think a, a, it's been a huge blessing in my life personally. Um, but I know that throughout our community, it's had significant impact as well. Um, positively uh, for sure. And also some <laughs> negatively, you know, we've, we've had some resistance, but that's um, you know, with progress comes backlash. That is a natural, right. as a natural state of all the progress we've ever made in this nation. Yeah. Well, well, tell me a little bit about like, um, for those that may not understand what you're doing, what are some common misconceptions so that you can just be like, Hey, this is not true. <laughs> sure. Um, I think, I think at first, um, a lot of folks thought that chill out and proud was going to be kind of anti-religious or or did not want to build a bridge with the religious community, um, some of which had expressed uh, a lot of discomfort with the fairness ordinance um, and honestly a lot of discomfort with the Pride event. Uh, you know, I had a pastor reach out to me that told me it was fine if the gays wanted to have a barbecue. That was fine. But we could not have any men in dresses on the square. That was what was unacceptable. Um, you know, and I explained to him, like outside of my own personal beliefs, how would I enforce that? How do you in your own church enforce any dress code and, and ensure that everyone's wearing what you think that their assigned gender should wear? How do you verify that? You know, and there's not an answer to that question. And I was, I was being facetious. Uh, I admit that. Um, but the effort behind Chill Out and Proud and P-Flag Somerset was visibility, uh, was that, hey, we are here and we're queer, and, um, but also an effort to educate and allow a comfortable space for people to get to know us. There were some people who came to Pride that weren't sure about it, that were a little uncomfortable, um, but they were curious and they wanted to see what this was about. Uh, I heard a story about... Um, a lady who is in her 40s and her mother was in her 70s and she had come out to her decades ago, but her mom still just didn't quite fully understand what it meant for her daughter to be a lesbian. Um, and she brought her to pride and her mom came to me and said, I can't believe that you did this. And I don't know if, you're, if it's helping anyone else, but I understand now. I understand what she faces every day. And I understand that that pride is just a celebration. You know, I used to have a problem with like you all having a special parade, <laughs> but she mm -hmm. got, she gained an understanding that day by just seeing people living out loud and loving each other and being part of their community in a, in a safe space that is like any other festival that we would have in this community. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, 
I think that there were a lot of misconceptions that we did not want to have some kind of relationship with religious institutions, with religious leaders. Um, you know, we welcome those conversations. We welcome the hard talks. I welcome them to the table. Yeah. Let's let's talk about what your discomfort is um, and how can I educate you and help clear that up? How can I make you more comfortable? Um, and I think... I think a lot of us know that there are some folks that are never going to accept us in the same way that they accept other people. Mm -hmm. And that's their prerogative. Uh, what those people think about us is none of our business. Um, but I think that being willing to be kind to one another, to extend that welcome, um, you know, we've we've been able to build a relationship with First Presbyterian uh, and St. Pat's Episcopal. And uh, both of their congregations as well as their facilities have been offered to us. Um, their congregations vended the event and handed out hugs. Uh, everyone said uh, the Presbyterians wore shirts that said, have you hugged a Presbyterian today? <laughs> um, but there, there are other churches and other church leaders that I think are having difficult conversations with their congregations. And if even if that's the greatest that we sparked um, in that circle of people who who maybe don't support us, uh, and and don't view us as deserving of equal rights. I hope they're at least having those hard conversations and they're being confronted with the fact that the neighbor they've always loved, the banker they've always loved, the cashier, the deli girl, some of the people that they love in their lives are LGBTQ plus and they didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're beginning to know it. Mm -hmm. And I hope that that's making them question a little bit of their inherent bias. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope it's making them kinder to their neighbors. Well, I just from knowing you and the work that you've done, you are so welcoming and you really do lift every spirit that is around you. Just being in your presence is always just like, ah, <laughs> and I'm so thankful for, for your presence. What are, um, so, so I'm leading into just that feeling of empowerment. Like when I, when I talk to you, you are always on a mission to help those find a voice um, or lift the voice. And so what are some ways, uh, people can feel empowered or, or make change? Um, well, it, I think them identifying how they wish to contribute, what they have to contribute to any cause. Um, some people prefer to be financial support. Some people prefer to be vocal support. Um, some people prefer to, you know, sit quietly and post social media campaigns. Um, I think knowing yourself and knowing what causes make you feel passionate will help lead you into knowing how you can contribute. Um, there are lots of organizations and agencies in Somerset, as well as in the Lake Cumberland area, um, even more if you branch that out to statewide. And there's lots of opportunities to get involved, to volunteer in whatever sphere you're interested in. Um, so I think just starting that, that research is a great first step. Um, seeing uh, what you're passionate about and, and where you might be able to to be involved. Um, and then I think, too, being brave, being courageous, um, to step up in spaces that are not traditionally activist spaces. Mm -hmm. So I, I um, when I was graduating uh, my undergraduate uh, degree, I was looking for a feminist job. That's what I kept telling my professor. So I'm looking for like a feminist job, a feminist space. And my professor said, you don't have to find a space that is inherently feminist for yourself. You need to take your feminism 
and put it in whatever space you inhabit, Mm. right? If it's not there, bring it to that space. So something as simple as challenging your coworker who sits next to you and maybe makes inappropriate jokes about any demographic of people, you know, if you look at them and say, why is that funny? Like, explain it to me. Why is that funny to you? And like, let's talk about it. Let's have that hard conversation. Um, Even that can be activist work. That can be really impactful and powerful because someone might be a little bit more comfortable in disclosing their truth to you in that moment, right? It's just you and one other person. It's not like a line of people at a protest and the other side of the line of people at a protest, which is different. Um, It might be a safer space for that person to admit Oh, you know, I don't, I don't really know why that's, why that's funny. I, my dad told me that joke and he laughed. And so I tell it, people laugh, but I guess it is kind of mean, you know, even if they just question themselves in that moment, even Mm. if they tell the joke again, you've planted that seed and every time they tell it, they're going to think about you. And so I think simple moments like that can also be a great starting point. Um, Having hard conversations at the table with your family and saying, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that can be some of the hardest. Um, but again, some of the most impactful and, and I think it is harder for people to not have compassion and be kind in those conversations when they love you. Right. I'm going to have a much more compassionate conversation with my family at the table than I would have at strangers while we're screaming at each other from across the line at a protest. Mm -hmm. Um, I I'm, less likely to have impact that way on those individuals, perhaps maybe on the cause or its visibility. Those things are still important. Um, but I think sometimes that, that the most powerful work you can do is in your own home, in your own community, in your own spaces where you're already comfortable and respected. Wow. Well, um, let, let's end on creativity. So how, um, how does creativity and activism work together? Oh, well, I think, I think activism stems from inherent creativity, right? Um, Someone has to be creative enough to come up with a campaign first off, right? Like, why do we have sit-ins? Why do we have protests? Why do people bring signs to a protest? All of those things that are, are visual, Sometimes they are halting, right? I've been part of a sit-in where we halted an office's capacity to function, which forced them to have a conversation because it was eliminating their productivity. So it's, it's, um, it's getting creative and figuring out how you can make good trouble, right? John Lewis says, make good trouble. And I think that's always the effort. Um, You know, with Chill Out and Proud, the first year we got creative. We did a lot of um, background research on venues and discovered that the Judicial Center Plaza required us to call and leave a name, a number, and a title of an event. They didn't need to know what kind of event that was or what that event was about. And so that's how I booked it. And so until we announced (laughs) at the end of August that we were having a Pride event, even the facilitators of that space did not know they were fostering a Pride event. They just thought they were fostering a festival, which it was, but it was just also a Pride festival. But I just left that word out, Mm -hmm. right? That's, that was creative. (laughs) Um, You know, us being very quiet about our planning process. Um, There was a very kind of closed group that do details up until we made it public. Um, That was creatively preventing some hurdles that might have existed if people had had a longer time to plan um, 
perhaps resistance to it. Um, so I, I think the protesters who came were creative. They brought sound systems and tried to be louder than us. Um, so even their, their level of activism that they felt they were participating in um, required some level of creativity. So I think it's, uh, it's figuring out um, the purpose of your activism. What are you trying to accomplish with this act? Um, what are you trying to infiltrate or halt or disrupt? Uh, and how can you best do that? And how can you best do that and maybe not get caught or, <laughs> or maybe ensure that it's legal? You know, there's, there's a variety of, of <laughs> limits that activists have to set on themselves. You know, like when you protest, you have to know the city ordinance. Mm -hmm. Do you have to <laughs> protest on the uh, sidewalk? Can you be in the grass? Don't be in the streets. That's, that's true everywhere, folks. <laughs> you know, I participated in Occupy Wall Street in New York City, and, and they go through trainings. Mm -hmm. You know, act, that kind of activist level or, or um, large-scale level of activist work, you know, they put everybody together and say, these are the things you can't do mm -hmm. to prevent being arrested. You know, so it's, it's identifying those limits and figuring out how you can walk very creatively between the lines sometimes. Um, so I, I think all aspects of it, uh, but also art, right? Art is inherently a reflection of life, which is inherently political and value-based and um, morally conscious and even morally self-conscious, I think. Mm. Um, so I think that in general, art is a great way to be an activist, to protest things, or um, to utilize your voice in a way that that maybe doesn't require you actually expelling your voice um, in whatever way that looks like, you know. Uh, yeah. So yeah, creativity and activism, I think they're the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like creativity is in like everything that we do see, um, but it's always interesting to see how people extend that with um, how they identify themselves. And so um, it's just wonderful. And uh, I just want to thank you for chatting with me this afternoon. Um, well, thank you for having me. So you have an event coming up, right? So do you want to give a little uh, promo for your event? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the third annual Chill Out and Proud event will be held on October 2nd, 2021 at Festival Field at Somerset Community College. Um, that is pending local, state, CDC, and institution-based COVID-19 guidelines. Um, if it's deemed safe to have an in-person event on a large-scale outdoors we will be doing that. However, we have a strong virtual contingency. So either way, mark your calendars for that weekend. Um, we'll be having a ball. There will be music and drag and art. And uh, if we're in person, lots of food um, and kind of a, a larger space for us to expand uh, our activities and things. So we're really excited. We're excited for this year. Hey. Well, um, and everybody that's in Somerset, Kentucky, and um, thank you, friends, for so much for joining me today. And you can find Kat on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, LinkedIn. Kat, is there anywhere else listeners can find you? Well, you can follow P Flag Somerset, Kentucky on Facebook. Uh, Chill out and proud Somerset on Facebook and Instagram, and then we also have a website, which is P Flag Somerset. Kentucky. Oh, no, wait, pflagsomerset.org. There's no <laughs> KY at the end, folks. pflagsomerset.org. And that org. will have all of the event information for Chill Out and Proud as well. So go check that out. And thank you, friends, for listening. And I will be here again next month. Bye. <laughs> 
Thank you, friends, for listening in this month. And thanks again to Kat for joining me. You definitely want to go over to the Patreon page to check out the Patreon podcast after show. This month, we even get a little furry feline visitor. So head on over to Patreon. It's loads of fun. Also, as always, big shout out to Brooke Galloway for our podcast music. If you feel like you've got an interesting perspective to share in regards to singing or finding your purpose, feel free to reach out to me. I'm always looking to meet new people and learn about different perspectives in the world. So just head on over to McNeilVoiceStudio.com, go to the podcast page, and message me. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, friends, until next month, stay tuned.